everybody, and welcome to the 133rd episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that's only legal to listen to in the season before the release of that other thing that maybe you can bring to F&M, or maybe not. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-FaceGames.com provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out face-to-face card pricing via mtgbrace.com, whether building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at mtgcritic on Twitter. My co-host, as usual, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at wizardbumpin. And we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. Enjoy uh, another weekend abroad. I had a fun time uh, exploring magic shops between my place and your place and then your place and, uh, and central Ohio this weekend, running around with my dad who Mm. is uh, on a mission to finish up his alpha set, which, uh, we established quite easily is basically impossible because magic shops don't have any alpha left. No, I wouldn't expect as much. You you didn't come all the way down here just to card shop crawl did you no no no. we had to take the family down there because my sister's getting married in october so they were doing her uh, bridal shower this weekend which my lovely daughter and and wife were attending and then pops and i went running around looking for magic cards and i did feel find a bunch of sweet deals um and some 50 cent binders and dollar binders and so forth um and we did meet a guy who has is one of these big monsters running deep waters silently kind of dudes he has multiple alpha sets, <laughs> along with a bunch of key comics and some beta sets. Um, it's funny because Madness always looks brilliant when it works out, right? The The people that bought up tons of Beanie Babies in the mid-90s are all in a heap of fools at this point. But anybody who decided to go in early on graded alpha and beta cards is sitting very pretty. It's like what, survivor bias, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, uh, I wanted I wanted to interview this guy, but he was having none of it <laughs> because <laughs> his whole thing is that he, like even on the boards where he participates in like high end groups and stuff, he just runs quiet and says nothing. Hmm. Okay, so wait, hold on. Do you say wife though? Well, my partner as a means of shorthand. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I'm in I'm in the habit of saying that to customs officials and so forth. Sure. Yeah, it makes sense. Um. <clears throat> okay. So. Uh, where were we? Uh, our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. So we have four segments as per usual today. We are going to go through the big movers of the week, all sorts of strange and wonderful cards in the list this week. We're going to go through our uh, picks for you guys, um, cards that may either make or save you money this week. And we've got a pretty bumper crop. Um, coming out of a busy weekend and there was two big magic tournaments uh, on the modern side of things this weekend there was gp prague over in europe and there was uh, i believe scg baltimore was a big modern tournament as well um, both uh, showcasing uh, the evolving and diverse metagame of modern um, I, thought, I think a lot of good signals coming out of those tournaments. And then we're going to f- wrap up with a our fourth segment, which is going to be our topic of the week. This week, we will be going over um, some of the new products that were announced today and just how uh, odd and confusing they may be for newer Magic <laughs> players. You stole my bit here, James. Wanted to see if I could do it. <laughs> I think you did a uh, stunning job. Thank you. Thank you. 
All right. So the first card of the week is Keeper of the Keys out of Conspiracy Foils 5 to 10. Uh, this was an unofficial pick, I think, last episode or an episode, two episodes ago of mine when we were talking about Yuriko. Um, so not too surprising there. I don't think the market price has moved on it yet, uh, but hopefully that will soon. Yeah. I mean, all of this conspiracy cards and conspiracy take the crown cards because of the uh, relative uh, shallow demand for those sets overall. Anything that has has been able to post up in modern, I mean, sorry, legacy or uh, EDH um, has has not surprisingly taken off uh, in relatively short time frame. Right. Yeah. And uh, I think Battle Bond is probably the other oh, product yeah. that we expect to kind of do that, right? I, I was going through my massive pile of mail from the last couple of months that had built up on the on the stateside uh, family home and had was a big smile on my face looking at all of the five dollar battle bond duels that I picked up. <laughs> that's yeah, that's uh, probably pretty pretty juicy right there, huh? Yeah, dipped my toe in the water on some Japanese copies, and there's a bunch of foils that were ordered ahead of that. I think you've got some of those as well, yeah. Yeah, I snagged a couple. I saw you posted uh, your Japanese Battle Bond boxes, complaining mm. that you couldn't open them. It's pretty tempting, but I don't think the EV justifies it. Um, I think I would target like selling those in the if it was on eBay, something like two hundred. Somebody was just doing a straight deal, like a direct deal through PayPal or a message board or something. Probably like one seventy five, one eighty would be reasonable, uh, reasonable margin given what I paid for them. Um, Kyle Lopez called into question whether they're actually that rare. Monty chimed in and said, you know, EMA was kind of like that uh, with Japanese EMA to a point, And then all of a sudden there was tons of it around. I just don't see that happening here. The the, the Japanese interest in legacy uh, flavored cards that were in EMA is going to be a lot, lot higher than this casual format that they basically didn't even bother to play. So the odds that you're a random Japanese LGS that gets like, 10 or 20 people in a week to play magic is going to bother ordering a bunch of casual flavored, uh, like two headed giant draft sets late in the year, just on the basis that they might be able to sell through some of the singles over in the U S it just seems really unlikely. Yeah. The, the, they feel like very similar products on the surface, but I guess underneath that, you know, from the perspective of wizards and the distributors, is it the case that they're that similar, which is a good point. Um, and again, they feel like similar products on the surface from somebody looking in. It's like, okay, this is sort of a casual extra product. It's got some reprints and funky of its own stuff, whatever. Um, there's a, there's again, also from the from the people who are like buying the boxes to sell type of thing. Uh, they have very different markets, very different demand profiles. So you know, they feel the same to us as consumers, but they can be very different to wizards in the stores. And the key point here, in case people weren't aware, is that when when U.S. stores order standard legal product, they are often offered um, foreign boxes in some ratio. Um, like for every 10 boxes you get, you can get a box of Russian, German, Japanese, or Korean, or whatever, or one of each, or depending on what your relationship is with your distributor. Um, but that was not the case with um, Battle Bond, as it is not the case with most of these supplemental summer sets. Um, they are Japanese release only. The Japanese stores aren't allowed to sell them directly overseas. So you have to find somebody that bought them from a store and is bringing them back or is willing to ship them to you, which 
in combination with the general rarity of the product, even in Japan, makes these one of the rarest booster boxes that in theory is still in print, but practically speaking, may as well be 10 years old. Yeah. So, you know, so I I do think grabbing them was probably a very good idea. Although overall, I'm not, I'm guessing that you're probably going to be better off splitting them, frankly, because who is going to, Who's going to want to buy the Japanese box, right? It seems like the type of thing people are going to want singles of. So, well, let's put it, let's put it this way: the guy that had all the alpha, the store owner, and by the way, the store has been around for years. Like this guy's been around since the beginning. And so we walk in the store, we immediately our ears perked up because we noticed that there was a bunch of old booster boxes up on a top shelf, like Mercadian masks and Mirage and stuff. And we said, "Oh, wait, wait, wait! What are the prices on those?" And he was like, no, that's not for sale. I just bring them out for display. I cycle through my collection. <laughs> so there are tons of people. And, and keep in mind, my father is one of these these people that buys every sealed product that comes out and never bothers to open it. Like, I wanted to play the Commander 2018 decks because he had bought uh, the case that has all four. But he didn't want to open them. Yeah. He doesn't even yeah. play Commander. He just he's, he wants to have one of everything. So, I mean... Mm-hmm. Those are the dudes that eventually are going to go, oh, Japanese Battlebond. I don't have that. Yeah, they'll, they'll be out there. I don't know how many of them they'll you'll be able to sell to. Uh, but yeah, 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 I get you. I get you. I, I have a feeling if I throw these up on the message on a Facebook group, I'll probably be the only one posting them all month. And they would probably sell pretty quick. I'm, I may hold sell two and then open one on camera or something as a video article for mtg price mm-hmm. i'm sure there will be buyers out there i guess i just wonder if it's you it could be a little tricky to find the buyers but then again you know i don't typically traffic in that type of thing uh it's a, obscure enough that i'm just like eh, i'm not gonna bother uh, it, at least in terms of the sealed i would i personally would just open it because i know it would probably be easier to sell them but at the same time, then you have to sell a lot more items, right? You know, if you're trying to break even on that box. And if you get unlucky, then you're really screwed. Oh, yeah. You can definitely, I think you can you can lose money on these boxes. But if you get really lucky, the upside is a lot higher than your average standard set. I mean, you, you can't, you're not going to open a foil Japanese true name nemesis in your box of Dominaria. True. Which are, what, like $300? Uh, no, nor English foils are like three or $400, aren't they? I, I would imagine Japanese foil true name nemesis is going to be something of a mythical creature. <laughs> there can't be very many. I I would guess that there are less of those than there are of masterpieces. Uh, yeah, that's probably accurate. Yeah, because there's a. I mean, there's a lot of Kaladesh opened. Although, as to my earlier point, I guess it's a an, a little unfair. You can compare if you compare it to a Russian box of Dominaria, you could open a Russian Teferi or Karn, which is probably worth even more. You think a Russian foil Teferi is more than a Japanese foil Trinim Nemesis? A couple years out? It's a good question. I would I would put my money on the Trinim, I think. Um uh, because the but I don't know. Maybe not. So my my buddy was who's big into comics was talking to me about this thing he does all the time on the comic collector groups. Um apparently it's like a big deal. Um where they auction stuff with like uh raffle tickets essentially so you take like a 500 hundred dollar comic and you sell 50 tickets at 10 bucks a piece and they use this like third party authentication service to make sure that the picking of the winner is is random and fair and people do it just like nonstop. Hmm. Uh, so i was toying with the idea of maybe trying that on twitter 
um, with the box of Battle Bond and seeing how that went. Like 10 tickets at 20 bucks a piece or 20 tickets at 10 or something, 40 at five. Well, you know, there was that, um, I don't, I think, I don't know if they still do it. I never really got into it, but I know what's going on. On uh, one of the Facebook groups they were doing where you would do something akin to that and they were auctioning, you know, magic product. Uh, and it was pretty popular. I mean, magic players are definitely degenerate gamblers. So it seems to me like, uh, you know, something like that got traction. You could definitely get a lot of interest because no one's like, oh, I want to spend $300 on a Japanese box of Battle Bond. But they'll be like, I'll throw 25 bucks of a raffle ticket. I'm sure I can win. <laughs> you know, flawless logic type of thing. I want to see somebody try it with one of these Alpha Lotuses that's up on eBay. We we currently have a 9.5 Alpha Lotus posted at 200 grand. Which sure. if it ever sells would set a new record for uh, Lotus pricing. And then there's a uh, a 9 Alpha Lotus posted for 100 grand. And another one, another 9 that's up for auction that is currently sitting at 35,100 with 29 bids and a day left. Okay. <laughs> so, assumably, let's let's assume that that nine that's up for auction is going to go for like forty grand when all is said and done, maybe as high as fifty. So you could sell five hundred raffle tickets at a hundred each. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of PayPal transactions to manage. Yep, <laughs> that would be a bit of a mess. <laughs> or fifty tickets at a thousand. Fifty tickets at a thousand bucks. You would you would absolutely sell those. People would pay a thousand dollars for a for a. Two, two, uh, 2% chance of the Lotus? Yeah, I think so. I, I, people, I, I really think like the, the magic population in general is very gambling oriented. So the way I would want to do that is unveil on Twitch and have a thing where like you're just chatting, you're, you're in the chat talking to everybody and have a system set up where you see the 50 people's names and every 30 seconds, one of them like goes dim, like they're out of the running. Mm. And you're just like counting down to the last five people and have like some bonus prizes along the way or something. That would be like, like every once in a while, like somebody gets dimmed, but they win a box of Dominaria or whatever. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, I, I am absolutely positive that you could get people to watch that. I don't know if it would be sustainable. Something that strikes me a little bit. The spectacle of that strikes me similar to like the beta Rochester draft, right? Where the first one is truly unique, but each one, you know, if they keep doing it, it's like, yeah, okay. It's not as fun now, but if you're doing it, you know, the first time for like a $50,000 Lotus. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'd get people in on that. I mean, one of the things we were talking about this weekend with the, the super alpha collector was how the YouTube culture is chewing up so much of the sealed product. Yeah. Opening old packs, old booster boxes, old starter decks and so forth. And these beta drafts that went on this summer chewed up some of the wizards reserve. The longer that goes on, the less of it is lying around and last man standing that, that resists opening it is going to be in a pretty position. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that I was annoyed about when I was watching the, um, when they did the three beta, the, the, they weren't all beta, but the three like high value Rochester drafts there because they had the one at Vegas, but then they did one at Gen Con. It was like the same thing or very similar. Um, and then there was a third one. They did it. I think it was in Asia. There was one that was another one that was similar. It was like an unlimited one. 
Uh, and I, I, one of the things I don't like about that is that uh, it's pulling so much product out of the out of the reserves here for something that there's you know not a lot of to begin with, and it wasn't it wasn't making use of it as a great spectacle. Like the first one was exciting. Doing another one a month later is not exciting. And you're right. Like th there's only so much of that to go around, and then it will just run out. And like eventually, you're going to get to the point where there's only, you know. Four, four booster packs of antiquities left sealed in the world. And it's like, okay, like you, you can't do this with them anymore, really? Or I mean, yes, you could, but like, I don't or, know. Or, or guys like the dude we talked to this weekend and Dan Bach drop the hammer and drop 600 cases of, of Alpha. <laughs> well, <laughs> except except, not, ex, except that, yeah, except that number is pure hyperbole because it's, we, we know, we, we can, you can do some pretty quick math and figure out what the upper limit is on what people are holding back. Right, right. Because we know how many of like each item are in the supposedly in the wild. Like we have the exact run, for instance, of how many uh, alpha rares there are. Exactly. So you can actually look and go, okay, well, this guy has 7% of all the alpha rares of this particular card. And this guy has, you know, 4% and blah, blah, blah. And eventually you can get it down to be like, well, we've accounted for 84% of this card alone. So, you know, that means what's left can't be more than 14%. And we know some of them were lost to time, collections, damage, that yep. type of thing. You can assume a reasonable attrition rate. You can work backwards from the premise that like 90% like uh, of total product must have been opened kind of in the first year. Mm -hmm. Because like of any given thing that gets printed, you don't hold back very much on purpose. No, especially when it was wildly popular and they were you know taken back by it. Yeah. So the number of cases like just sitting around by mistake in the back of some sports card shop that forgot to open them and then the guy died and they've been in his attic ever since is extremely low. Yeah. And you can also cross reference against the population numbers for graded cards, which contribute some amount of knowledge. Um, you know, if you've got three copies to something doesn't really tell you much, but if you've got like a hundred graded copies or 500 graded copies of a certain alpha rare, you know that a certain percentage is accounted for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's fa it's fascinating. It's going to be very interesting to see how this develops over the next five years. Um, my money is, my money is still on pretty in intense long-term gains. It'll probably be longer than five years, you know, uh, I think, but, of it, you're gonna hit a point where there's just like none of this stuff left, which is which will be un unfortunate because I don't mean like there will be few. I mean there literally won't be any left. Be like oh, okay. I mean the acceleration on these the high end lotuses is just crazy. My my dad was looking at was balking at twenty grand for an alpha lotus last week. Say what a year ago? <laughs> yeah, less than that. Six months ago, eight months ago, and now this this lotus might go for forty plus on eBay. Well, you know, there was that article, which I know you were not a fan of, uh, that came Business out. Business Insider Australia? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they were talking to. So the article was just fluff garbage. Like, it doesn't really matter. But they were talking to, I guess, what is it? The CEO or, or owner or whatever. Of Gawker. Of Gawker, who was yeah. talking about buying like 70 gram lotuses um, and how he thinks they're going to be worth a million dollars type of thing. Uh, and, you know, the rest of the article aside. I don't think that that was unfounded commentary at all. Uh, but my main point when Seth brought it up on Twitter was that this is a dude who owns a media company. 
when he invests in something, you don't think he's going to leverage his knowledge of how to get an article in, cir- in circulation to make sure that other people follow follow through on on the path he just set up? Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like he his the, the information he shared was very scant. He basically just said these are going to go up. I expect them to keep tripling. I mean, like that's just a silly statement. Like you can't expect a hundred thousand dollar asset to keep tripling unless you see significant influx of activity either from a growing player base or it catches fire as a secondary market collectible for people that are generally not interested in magic which there is some you know some possibility of but when you compare magic to something like comics like key comics first appearance of wolverine first appearance of spider-man and that kind of nonsense those things are also exploding um and are much more likely to to pull in attention on the basis that the marvel universe and dc universe movie um, franchises are massive mega billion dollar franchises that are much much as big as magic is is say like a certainly sub billion dollar a year industry including primary and secondary markets that doesn't even touch the scope of the the marvel projects right well uh, you know that's very fair but I, I think all of that is true, but in the same breath, you, you're just talking about how your dad didn't want to pay twenty grand for an Alpha Lotus a year ago, and now they're selling for probably himself for forty or fifty. Yep. So I'm, well, I mean, because p- people like my dad are, are in the position now where it's put up or shut up. Like, do you do you want to finish the Alpha set you've been working on for ten years or not? And if you have the means, then it's just about convincing yourself that today is the day. But you, so you're saying that there's a limit to, like that you think that's going to stop that like guys like your dad i, are I think that i think the, in, the upper boundary limit. on i think the upper boundary on a lotus is significantly lower and harder to multiply several times over than something like first edition of spider-man which has millions and millions and millions of fans worldwide and a much stronger franchise backing between the movies the cartoons the toys the constant constant video games that you know, like there's no comparing the new PS4 Spider-Man game to any edition of Magic Online ever. <laughs> they are <clears throat> one is a the Spider-Man game on PS4 is a drop in the bucket in terms of the total marketing profile for Spider-Man, the brand, which is just a drop in the bucket for Marvel Universe, the, the mega brand. And <clears throat> and yet it's still, you know, that that video game might sell more than Magic does for the entire year. It's, I guess it's, it's it's funny to hear you on the other side of this because you, I feel like, typically are much more in the the sky is the limit on a lot of this. Uh, but this time you've kind of gone the other direction. I, I just don't. I don't think you can have a million dollar Lotus anytime soon. The I, I think you can have a fifty thousand dollar Lotus. You can have a hundred thousand dollar Lotus. You can have a two hundred thousand, maybe a three hundred thousand in a couple of years. But as as you push up that curve, like. My dad can afford, if he really wants to, and wants to make some sacrifices, he could afford a $50,000 Lotus. Is he going to pay it? Eh, I don't know. He hasn't written the check yet. Um, could he afford a $500,000 Lotus? No, he would draw the line. Um, that would require major. <laughs> that, that requires people with really deep pockets. You're going to sell your properties for that type of thing. Or, you know, you just need to be a multimillionaire. And there's just so much. There are guys, guys who make half a million a year, lawyers, doctors, tech employees, and so forth, exist in the, in the tens of thousands. Guys who make five million a year are a lot less of. Sure. Uh, so, 
So I think that there are upper limits. I think that return on investment is going to shrink as time goes on because you're just going to get so far up the price curve that these things are going to be changing hands amongst a very small population. What's um uh wait, hold on, I had a thought. What's oh shoot. The the volume look like for those ultra rare comics. You know, like in terms how, of like how many minty Spider-Man number ones are there? I'd have to look it up. I mean, they were they were printed to in the 60s. A lot of those Marvel keys. So what were 60s print runs? I'm not a comic expert. We'd have to have somebody on and talk about that. Maybe we should set that up. Um, it would certainly be an interesting discussion to get some insight and, and make some comparisons. Because if you know, if if. You know, I totally buy that like Spider-Man, Superman, Wolverine, whatever are, you know, those comic books are way more popular. Uh, no question there. But I wonder, is there five or six times more of that product? You know, are there 20 or 30 mint action comic number ones? I mean, they're, they're another 20 years older. Sure. And they were in a culture where like comic sleeves didn't exist for years. Right? Yeah. I don't, I, I'm not saying I think there are, I'm just wondering how prevalent they are. And, you know, so I just, I, you know, this, this starts to bleed into some other topics a little bit, but I also kind of think of it like, uh, you know, last, last decade or so money has really been flowing up across society in general. And, uh, I do wonder if perhaps, you know, with inflation and money pushing up the economic chain and nerds getting obscenely wealthy in Silicon Valley, like it does seem like you have a lot of the greater financial and socioeconomic trends necessary to push Lotus to, for instance, a million dollars. I don't know. I don't know what to think of it. I mean, ultimately, it's nothing more than sort of an academic question unless you have the money to invest in it. And uh, I don't have... A <laughs> hundred grand laying around the buy two magic cards. So, I mean, it, it, it's a it's an interesting question. Should I take every spec I have and push it into a lotus? Yeah, I mean, I, I if I liquidated, I mean, if I liquidated, I think I could hit it. I think I could hit near my alpha lotus. It'd probably take me a year to to get rid of it all, but I think I could. Do especially that. if you, especially if you're not doing a deal at buy less price, if you're trying to get retail to get there, right? Yeah, which, you know, which honestly is a fair question, like, because that actually might be worth it. If you buy one magic card for 40 grand, if you think it's going to hit 100 grand in a couple of years or 500 grand in 15 years, that's still an insane return on investment compared to almost anything else. Right. And you, and you don't have to go to the post office every couple of days. Yeah, right. The, the amount of time that you save alone is worth some amount of money. Hmm. So apparently, I think first appearance of Spider-Man is Amazing Fantasy number 15. Just trying to track down the print run on that. Give me one second. Well, in the meantime, while James looks that up, I guess we can get back to our uh, yeah. top movers of the week, which was actually where we were. Uh, 30 minutes ago. Where, what, what uh... Noxious Gearhawk? Did we talk? No. Nope. Was it Keeper of the Keys? Was it literally the first card? 
Uh, yeah, you only made it through the first card. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's good. It was a good talk, though. Nice 27 minute discussion of Keeper of the Keys. We've got 22 more cards to go uh, at half an hour apiece. This is going to be an 18 hour episode. No problem. Following that is Decimate from Conspiracy Foils, five bucks to ten bucks. James called it last week. Uh, the Conspiracy Foils, then Grinding Station, Fifth Dawn copies, uh, non-foil, just under three bucks to about six. It's part of Zach Elsick's modern combo that we talked about here last week. The sort of the meets Doctor Foundry deal. Um, so also part of part of that. Uh, and it's the non-foils, but you know Fifth Dawn had an extremely low print run, so. Not a lot of any of those of liquid in the market. Yeah. Uh, sorry, we're on Grinding Station now? I just did Grinding Station. So, yeah, Noxious Gear Hall. Right. Yeah, Grinding Station uh, was part of that Elsic thing. Awesome. Uh, I've got foils, and so do some of our listeners. So, everybody, good luck in unloading those. Noxious Gear Hulk was the masterpiece I called last week. Um, and here we are with it having popped off. It was at a tipping point, so it didn't really take many people buying many copies for it to move. Moving from 35 to 75, that is just about where we thought it might get to. Um, so the question now becomes whether EDH players will take it off everybody else's hands. One would have to imagine in some some amount they will. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there was only 20, 20 or so copies out there to pick up at the time, so yeah. it doesn't take much, much demand from the 5,000 registered decks on EDH that suggest that there are few... T- few tens of thousands of players interested in it. Okay. And uh, if you missed on that, you can still, I'm sure, pick up the uh, pack foils for less than $10, which seems like a slam dunk for a mythic that's going to see me regular playing EDH for years. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, after that, we have Conspiracy, the foil copies out of uh, Time Shifted Sheet, Time Spiral, 10 bucks to about 20 uh, almost certainly based on Yuriko because Yuriko turns wants you to have ninjas and there aren't that many. So conspiracy is a way to make all of your assorted creatures into ninjas and trigger Yuriko. Uh, similarly, Inkai, Serpent of Oni, another ninja, the plane chase copies from 2012, six bucks to about 13. Um, uh, James and I kind of had it as a pick two episodes ago. We were talking about like the pre-release copies, uh, but you know, copies in general were, were looking pretty good. So uh, it's like in guys in general is just getting drained across the board. Yeah. Um, let me, next we got nesting dragon from commander 2018 going from about two fifty to $5. Um, uh, one of the more interesting cards from the commander series, uh, comes out of the wind grace deck, uh, makes sense that people are going to want to be picking up some extra copies of this to use later. Two to five, whatever. Hopefully one day it hits 10, and then if you got in on 10 or 20 copies early on, you'll be able to out them to a buy list reasonably. Yeah, I, I don't see this being popular enough to be one of those cards, uh, but maybe, maybe. I don't know. I would probably be tempted if I could trade. the If I had picked them up cheap and the buy list was what I paid, buy list today is what I paid for it when I grabbed it, I would probably trade it into like Channel Fireball or ABU or whoever will give me 30 or 40% in store credit and just take that bonus uh, and, you know, make that my profit margin and run. Um, Time Sifter from Mirrodin, uh, looking at foils from like five bucks to 12 or so. Uh, I, I don't know for sure. It seems like it would be in a Minotaur card, but we haven't, it's not showing up there at the moment. Uh, so I'm not positive. Yeah. The, 
I'm not 100% on that. I've seen there have been mirrored and foils moving just generally. Um, and it looks like those kind of middle year foils are now just being targeted in sequence. And we're going to see a mm-hmm. couple more examples of that on this list that don't have super obvious explanations other than that they were in relatively low to supply. And so somebody decided to make a move. Yeah. I mean, the, the card certainly looks like it would be at home in a Minotaur. It's just when you look at the recent decks, it's not there. So I don't know. Fair. Um, then uh, another trader out of time spiral uh, non-foils or no, I'm sorry, the foil copies from eight to about 20. Um, there were almost none of these left to begin with. So uh, not too surprising there. Yep. Uh, Mirari's Wake Foils from Judgment. This is the original version of the card, moving from 30 to 75. Uh, perennially useful uh, card in green ramp decks for EDH. Um, doubles your mana. And what's the other ability on it? Gives all your creatures plus one, plus one? Uh, yeah, doubles your mana and gives all your guys plus one, plus one. Yeah. Definitely, That's definitely the important part of that card. Uh, awesome and, and go wide strategies that are also ramping and have mana sinks. I was kidding. It's not the important part. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, foil standstills out of Odyssey, like 18 to 50. Um, other than it being standstill and people liking this card and Legacy, I, I don't know if there was a triggering event because everything this weekend was modern. The, pro, the Legacy Pro Tour is over, so I don't have anything specific to point to. Yep, I got nothing on standstill. Sharding Sphinx from Shards of Alara. Foils in theory going from $2 to $7. Uh, probably a Brutaclad push. Yeah, that's what I would expect. All right, what's next on the list? Uh, following that is Ink Fathom Witch, foils out of Shadowmoor, a dollar and change up to five. Uh, this should be Yuriko, although I can't 100% confirm that. It certainly seems like that type of card. Um, so I would definitely be selling these if you've got any of them floating around. Uh, I don't see it being a really high demand card, even though it's an even, you know, it's an even tied foil, so the supply is right, uh, pretty low, but not that many people are going to be interested in it. Yeah. Uh, Burning Sands from Odyssey foils moving from five dollars to twenty dollars, and you were thinking maybe because Varchild builds might want it in EDH. I mean, I used to play it with that deck with like Varchild's War Riders because they get the survivor tokens, but then it just kills the survivor token immediately. But EDH rec is not showing recent decks with that as the. It does. The recent decks are not showing that in Varchild, so I don't know for sure. It's my best guess. It's also an Odyssey foil, and there were a couple other Odyssey foils that I trimmed from the list just because I had no idea whatsoever. Um, in fact, there's another one a little further up the list as well, and it's like, I don't know, maybe there's a reason for these. It could also just be somebody just picking them off. Yeah. One of those run deep and silent guys just decided to hit Odyssey. So next on the list, we've got Seal of Removal and Seal of Primordium, both of which we figure the foils are moving in the case of Seal of Removal from $1 to 4 and with Primordium from 3 to 20 on the basis of Maldrotha um, being able to recycle these out of the graveyard over and over again in EDH. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Seal of Primordium has been useful in modern sideboards for a while now. Um it's a way to, you know, for a lot of green decks to get enchantment hate into play, enchantment or artifact hate into play before your opponent um, can really set up counter spells or what have you. Uh, so you just get it in there and it just sits and stares your opponent in the face and they have to deal with it, um, which they might not be able to do. Uh, but it's also really good in Muldrotha. The Both of them are good in Muldrotha because you can just keep casting it from your graveyard and 
uh, you know, make your opponents try and get, exile your graveyard or deal with this type of effect every turn. Yeah. Uh, Ramosian Sergeant out of Macadian Masks, one of the old rebel cards. Uh, one of, that was a ridiculous deck to play against back in the day. Anybody who played standard in that era remembers how annoying that deck was. Uh, yeah, I never really had to play against it, but it certainly seemed uh, real obnoxious. They basically just end of turn, pull another creature into play, and if you ever target one of them to kill them, they just respond with a trigger that goes and gets a replacement, and then they keep keep going. So they would run you out of <laughs> removal pretty fast, and you would just get overrun. Magic. Yep. Good magic. So in theory, the foil is going from $2 to 14 I I, I got to say, like, I can't think of anything that, you know, rebels are not suddenly a thing. So I would imagine that this is Mercadian Masks era foils now being targeted. People just going through the list on TCG as has been happening for a couple of years now, um, looking for things that are easy, you know, low hanging fruit. Tiny supply, I no chance of being resupplied. I like to think that somebody one day is just like, oh, it turns out that uh, Rebels have been good in Legacy all of this time and we just didn't realize it. And suddenly Rebels are going to be a major component <laughs> to that format. Somebody cracked it. It's the new Pirates. If you combine the Rebels mechanics with Death and Taxes type effects, you that would be a nasty, nasty deck. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, if you put that ability on any cards that mattered, it would be savage. If you, if you had a rebel that did what Thalia does <laughs> and wasn't a legend, uh, that would be pretty nasty. I mean, that yeah, that almost might be enough to get <laughs> rebels. I wonder how far rebels are from being legacy playable right now. Like, it's probably not actually that far. I, I think, Magic needs, I think Magic needs to do a lot more of the... Uh, any Any deck that was played in the last 365 or like the last two years worth of tournaments and here's a list of what was played um you can't play any of those decks you have to play a deck that is at least 20 cards different <laughs> hmm. not not unlike the modern unbanned list tournament that star city ran not that long ago that mm-hmm. was pretty amusing yeah it'd be curious to see uh you know i'm sure there's nobody trying rebels in legacy so it's kind of like you know, if somebody actually gave this a shot, like put an put an earnest effort into it, like how far away would it be? Like, you know, we're not saying it's going to be right there, but it's like maybe it would get closer than anyone thinks. Because if nobody's trying, like maybe it actually is decent, but we just don't know. Hmm. Probably, I'm sure that Rebels is actually the hidden deck of Legacy. Sounds reasonable. Um, after that, uh, overlaid terrain. Uh, foils from Nemesis, two bucks, like 18. This card blows up all of your lands and then makes your lands tap for double mana. Uh, so it's not really showing up in Wind Grace, but it seems like that's probably what it would be intended for. Um, you know, if you're playing something like Splendid Reclamation with it, uh, you know, it's a nice little one two combo to just suddenly double the value of all your lands or uh, some of the other effects that allow you to do it. Or maybe you, you decide to fire it off in like turn four real early before you fall too far behind with it um but it doesn't look like it's really gained that much traction yet uh so i wouldn't i don't i, I think it's going to be a while before you actually sell any of these at this price yeah you said you, you wouldn't run it and get rug variants right no i don't think so i never really found myself short on cards for the most part uh and the price if it, your plan falls is you basically just lose the game on the spot like someone's just going to attack you and you're out and that's it. So, you know, you don't want to get that wrong. Plus, you know, even if you have it, all the pieces in hand, somebody just counters it or like 
plays a graveyard removal spell in response. Like you, you can't expect somebody to not do that to you if you intentionally put all your lands in the graveyard. Sure. All right. So next on the list, we've got Active Authority from Commander 2013, moving from a dollar to seven fifty. That is a nice buy list um, action if you pick up some of those back down the road. A uh, variety of different people in the MGG Finance community called that card as something you might want to watch out for at various points. Yeah, that's the uh, the detention sphere type effect, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, following that is Charmed Pendant from Odyssey. Again, there's another one. This Odyssey cards foils from a dollar to twelve. Charm Pendant, if it's the one I'm thinking of, and let me check really quickly here. Yeah, this card is actually useful in uh, in Sidisi, uh the uh, original Konza Tarkir variant that makes Merfolk, because it mills one of your cards, which allows you to get a zombie token, and it gives you a bunch of mana, so that's kind of an iffy card. Uh, I don't think anyone's paying 12 bucks for him, possibly. Uh, I think this is part of what appears to be a foil Odyssey run, but I thought I'd mention it because it's actually a useful card. Sure. Uh, I should I should point out Active Authority is not the Grasp of Fate, uh, which is the Oblivion Ring variant. Active Authority is a artifact and enchantment killer. So when it enters the oh. battlefield, you may exile target artifact or enchantment, and then at the beginning of your upkeep, you can do it again. If you do, the, the controller of the thing you just blew up the second time gains control of Active Authority. That's what it is. That's what it is. Okay. And it's reportedly in 2200 or so EDH decks. Sure. Um, so finishing just, off the week. Sorry, go ahead. Just the final point on that is yet another commander only card that's only ever seen a single printing popping off, and this yes. one relatively modest and yet still climbing. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, finishing off the week with Surge Node foils out a new Phyrexia. They were fifty cents. Now they're thirteen dollars. This is not Shriekhorn, which is what I thought it was. This is uh, the one that enters the battlefield with six charge counters on it, and then you can move those charge counters to elsewhere. We were looking around and couldn't really find where this would be, like well, who's playing this. I mean, it's popped up in a couple combo decks here and there, but it's not really uh, a well-known or a major component of any strategy, even sort of fringe. So I don't know if anyone has any great ideas. Uh, we're all ears. Yeah, by all means, inform me as to why I'm supposed to care that Surge Note is, in theory, a $15 foil. <laughs> um, okay, so let's jump into segment two, our cards of uh, Chris Watch here. Uh, James, you've got a couple to talk about, so we will certainly start with you, I think. Start with uh, a commander that is near and dear to your heart, Sidisi Brood Tyrant. Foils uh, are, are sitting around in the 5 to $6 range. I think they could easily hit 15 before this, that card ever sees a reprint. It could be years. Um, no reason for them to ever target it reappearing. If it shows up in a fall commander deck, it won't be foil, etc., etc., etc. It's only registered in three or four thousand EDH decks on EDH rec, but that means there's you know ten thousand plus people that probably play it. And if you want a foil to upgrade your commander, or you're running it at, in the ninety nine in some other deck, um, get them while you can. Yeah, I don't. Uh... Yes. I agree. She's really cool. I like her a lot. Him, her, as her, as a, yeah, as a, uh, as a commander, a a snaky her. Yeah. So it seems like a a card, and then they'll they'll. I'm sure they'll print something, you know, that'll kind of make her interesting again. I don't know. I like her. Cool, cool commander. I I don't think it's the kind of card that's going to like pop off next week. I mean, unless listeners buy it, but. As a 12, 18 month hold kind of thing. The, what's got me going here is that the the supply has just gotten so low. 
I, mm-hmm. I don't think demand is tre- tremendously deep. I just think that when there's 20 or 30 copies of something lying around and the difference between the cheapest and the most expensive is like $10 and it's sub $10, that's relatively easy slam dunk to operate. Right. For sure. Um, all right. So my first card of the week is Chain Reaction. I'm looking at foils out of World Wake. It's the only only foil printing the card saw. Uh, this is the four mana. It's each creature. It deals damage to each creature equal to the number of creatures in play. So if there's only one creature in play, it does one damage to it. But if there's 10 creatures in play, it does 10 damage to each creature. Um, you can get some pretty outrageous numbers on chain reaction. Uh, so in general, it's a, it's a four mana red sweeper because it's rare that there aren't enough creatures for it to kill everything. And you can also set up some pretty cool combos. Um, if you have, for instance, Boros Reckoner, you can shoot people <laughs> in the face for 20 damage. Uh, you know, there's a, you know, Brit Swans of Bren Argyle lets you draw 10 or 15 cards, and there's a bunch more too you can set up. Um, in general, I'm a fan. Uh, oh, I know what I would do. I would do, uh, oh God, I have this in my uh, Zada Hedron Grinder deck. There is this one other card I would play. And it was, ah, I have to, I have to look this up. You have to give me a second, but you could set that up with chain reaction and then kill the entire table at once. Uh, sure. Was pretty cool. In any case, it not only is it an effective wrath, you can do some fun stuff with it too. Foils are currently in and around three bucks or so. Supply is getting pretty low. It's in 5,000 EDH stacks. So there's definitely, um, there's some pickup there. People are using this card, uh, so I don't think, and I, you know, I, I like it up to like maybe 10 bucks. I don't think it's going to take over the EDH or anything, but it's just a quiet card that does, you know, fill some good roles. Uh, it's still very cheap. Supply is very low. Uh, and, you know, seems ripe to kind of double up, triple up type of thing. I, I admittedly did not even know this card existed. I've yeah. never seen it played, but I don't deny that, that it is seeing a reasonable amount of play. And more importantly, there's a part of the narrative here we didn't fully explore yet, which is that it's actually seen reprints multiple times in Commander sets. It was in Commander, it was in Commander 2015, and it was Commander 2018. But yeah. the thing about that is they're never foils. So if they keep drawing attention to the card and people are playing it and they've just picked it up and it must be in the Windgrace deck, I'm assuming. Um, um, I didn't, is it? Was it in 2018? Is that what you yeah, said? It's, yeah, it's in 2018. It doesn't you, seem like a Windgrace card. You can get this card for 15 cents, so it's got a, it's in one of the decks. Um, but my point is that if you keep drawing attention to a card like that, some percentage of the players are going to go, oh, I'd like to get it. You know, I'm, I foil my decks, and so now I've picked up an on-foil version of this card. I just noticed it existed, which was exactly what would have happened to me if I played Commander 2018 this weekend like I wanted to. My dad wasn't stingy. Um, <laughs> and so you notice it and you go, oh, but I foil out my deck, so let me go look up how much this foil costs, and it takes 20 of those guys, and then there's no foils left. Bird girls. My dad won't let me play with his My cards. Yeah, I could have bought them myself, but I'm whining. I actually know a guy locally who had bought was wasn't buying all the sealed product, but he bought a bunch of it, and then his son cracked his like thirteen year old son cracked a dual deck to play with one of his friends, and the dad was so distraught by this <laughs> that he just gave up magic. Like he just stopped playing magic because of that, and the son felt terrible. I just thought it was funny. So the son needs to check him into an insane asylum. Yeah, it seemed like uh, like maybe he'd already decided to quit, type of thing. Uh, but all right, well, chain reaction foils at three. I mean, if you're ever going to want them, get them because it doesn't look like they have any intention of reprinting it in foil anytime soon. No, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So what do you got next for us? 
Similarly, Basilisk Collar has only ever been uh, printed in foil twice, once in the original printing um, back in 5th Dawn? Uh, no, World Wake. World Wake. Um, and then again in M17, MM17. Um, you can get foils sitting around on this uh, card that shows up in at least 10,000 or so decks on EDH Rec. Um, get them for about five or six bucks, depending on where you're picking them up. Um, I would look for you to X, you can throw them in a deck, use them for a while. And if it ever gets north of 15, which I don't think will take too, too long, um, you'll probably be pretty happy with whatever you trade out into. Yeah, I'm actually kind of surprised that the MM17 foils are that low because the original pack foils are like 20, 30, $40, aren't they? They're pretty pricey. Basil's collars used in a bunch of, you know, occasionally used in modern combos and modern sideboards. Uh, it shows up in EDH a good bit. Uh, it's a pretty, you know, lifelink and death touch is a pretty annoying combination of abilities. According to TCG Player, actually, the original foils are no more expensive than the MM17 ones. So you might actually want to look there first. Really? Um, and the and the ramp is really steep. It starts at like 10 and goes up to 17 pretty quickly. So maybe pick snap those up before you go after the MM17 ones. Hmm. It's not very many of them. So odd to me. And then over on the Modern Masters 2017 list, you're looking at 35 results or so, and the ramp is relatively shallow up into the seven dollar range. So this isn't going to, you know, disappear overnight either, um, unless one of the listeners gets feels frisky. But picking these up at five or six, you're going to make use of them easily, and then out somewhere between fifteen and twenty. Yeah, easy breezy. Nice. Uh, my second pick this week is a real low, real small ball type of deal, um, but I am looking at Worm Harvest foils, uh, mostly out of Modern Masters. If you can find Eventide, then more power to you. But these are uh, Modern Masters foils. The original Modern Masters, by the way, are about a dollar or so. Worm Harvest is a five mana sorcery that makes a 1-1 one, one worm for every land in your graveyard. So in like Wind Grace and Gitrog, it makes a boatload of creatures. Uh, and then you can retrace by discarding a land card. And hey, it turns out both Windgrace and Gitrog want you to do that a lot. So the card is just unreal in that deck. Like it's a one card win condition. Um, and really, uh, you can really set up some disgusting plays if you combo this with uh, what was that? That overlaid terrain we were talking about earlier. If you float some mana before you set this off, destroy all of your lands, like make 15 or 20 worms. And then bring all your lands back. Oh, man. Uh, but, you know, I think you could see the foils bounce up to, uh, you know, if they're a dollar now, you might be able to get those up to four or five, six bucks. You know, that's not really enough for you to want to sell these on TCG player uh, one at a time. But if you're getting in at a dollar and you can kind of buy a bunch of them and then you wait a couple months and the buy list is like three bucks. Again, you can, you know, three or four bucks. You can send those in, get a 30 percent trade in bonus. Uh, and now you're getting, you know, 350 in, in store credit for a card you paid a dollar for. So it's, it's a nice little win. Uh, it's easy, kind of low risk. Um, and I think that's, uh, it's right picking, I think. I think it's one of those, those picks where if you want one for yourself, go ahead, snap one off. If you're looking, trying to decide where to allocate your limited spec funds, we've probably given you some other better options this week uh, yeah. since our pool is yeah. relatively deep, but Modern Masters was the was a very low print run compared to the the two that came after. So uh, these will dry up eventually. Yeah, if you really just want to dip your toe into the spec game, it's mm-hmm. cheap. All right. So the next one is a is a little bit more debatable. Um, 
Kintaferi, which is already a $40 Mythic in Standard from a Spring set, hit 60 when a bunch of the sets are knocked off the table and replaced with Ravnica this fall. I have wanted to recommend Teferi several times, but have been unable to bring myself to do it because $40 is such a hefty price tag. Uh, and I, I think I even mentioned this on the cast a couple of weeks ago that he was 35 and I was like, eh, I want to tell you to pick him, but it doesn't seem like a great idea. Uh, you know, could this card be $70? Absolutely. No question about it. I guess I I am not at a position where I'm comfortable telling people to pull the trigger on it, but I'm totally fine saying, hey, you should put this on your radar. There's a 15% off coupon on eBay tomorrow. I think that if you you play both standard and modern and you tend to play control, go ahead and snap off your Teferis. I seriously doubt you see him at 20 before he rotates standard. If he if somehow that happens, you can just go ahead and dollar cost average down the road and make up for your mistake. The the foils are currently at 100. There's very few of them. It won't take more than 20 or 30 interested parties picking up foils for the long term before that number will jump. I think you can as high as $100 is. I think that this is the next Liliana of the Veil in modern. A card that is known to be hyper powerful doesn't show up in that many decks really, but has a home in other formats. Like Teferi is going to post up in EDH at least in the tracks and in a whole bunch of other places as well for a variety of reasons because he just does so much and has so much open-ended synergy with current and future cards in in Commander. Um, and you might even see him show up as as a legacy card. Who knows? Um, people have already toyed around with it. At minimum, it's modern EDH. It's going to be a staple for years. You won't see a reprint for three to five years, would be my guess. And I think I like the foils to go from 100 to 200 before it ever sees a reprint. And I, I, I don't think you have much to lose if you can get in closer to 35. It could end up being a 60 or $70 mythic heading out of the, the ass end of October this year. Yeah, and I can't. I absolutely cannot tell you that I disagree. All I can say is I'm I'm wary, and I probably won't be able to bring myself to spend that money just because, if, and if for no other reason than you know that buy-in's hefty enough, and I've got other cards that I'm I'm curious about. Uh, but if you really believe, uh, I wouldn't fault you for making the call. Basically, if you're like, I think this is my train, I'm gonna be like, hey, I, I think you're. It's a very valid pick. How do you feel about Russian foil to fairies in the two hundred and fifty to three hundred dollar range? You know, I s- never really deal with that stuff. Um, you know, the market for it is so small, uh, and selling that is is honestly, I think, like seems like half the work. Like you can figure out that the you know the work of figuring out that the card's a good spec is is fine and all and that, but it's like you have to work so hard to sell those compared to you know. Anything else, you just like throw it on TCG player and you're done because that's not how you sell Russian foil cards. You have to find yeah, that, that yeah, that's a networking and Facebook group kind of thing. Yeah, so I, I mostly just don't want to go through all of that. It's easier for me to just pull up TCG player and stuff a few envelopes every night. Uh, but as for is the price any good? I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> what is it? Foil Russian gristle brands like nine hundred dollars or a thousand dollars or some nonsense. So like, it's, it's not a gristle brand, but it's who knows what it could be. 
I think it might be more important than Grizzlebrand. Grizzlebrand's banned in EDH, right? Yeah, but he's also part of like every combo deck in Legacy and Modern, or in a lot of them. Not really. He shows up in a couple, but nothing that's actually seeing play right now. Well, I mean, I don't know, you know, right now, today, not a lot, but like every time somebody plays a show and tell deck or a reanimator in Legacy or build something in Modern where they're cheating creatures in the play, I mean, it's him and Emrakul are always your first choices. He's in every sure. cube. I, I think Teferi is not going to get banned in either of those formats, though. No. And I think not, that so. all I need to know is that in blue-white control decks that could be playing a full four copies of Jace, they are electing to play two or three copies of Teferi um, instead of some number of Jaces, which is... And when they talk about the win condition, they are generally talking about Teferi, not Jace, which is pretty impressive. I, I mean... Um, that, that there is a Planeswalker now printed that is... That people don't bother to, to speak about Jace because it's more important to your win setting up a win condition well he was jace was still played as much or more than teferi in those decks right i think in general what was that yes no no they're they're neck they're neck and neck they're two they're either it's either two or three copies of one or the other depending on who's building the deck it looks so when i was looking it looked like it was there was not there was very rarely more teferis than jaces but sometimes more jaces than teferis i've seen two twos and threes on both sides of that column but i suspect that if any, I, I suspect that that's a nod to Teferi being a five casting cost spell in a format where people can win on turns two, three, four. Right. Uh, Which is relevant. But all the interviews I've seen about Blue White and Jeskai Control in Modern, nobody's talking about how Jace is winning them the game. They're talking about how Teferi is winning them the game. Yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I, I'd have to pay more attention. Uh, I'm sure I think part of the part of it is that they work very well in concert. So uh, whether, you know, having... It doesn't really matter if you having four Jaces is great, but the four, but you can't do anything with the second one in your hand. But you can definitely do something with the, uh, you know, having J. You can have both Jaces and Teferi in play, right? Like mm-hmm. that's that's more valuable than the fourth Jace, essentially. <laughs> yep. All right. So my last pick of the week, I'll give you guys a bonus, is Combustible Gear Hulk Masterpieces, a card that just did nothing in standard because it was the wor- easily the worst of the of the gear hulks verderous and noxious and and especially uh what was the blue one torrential torrential um was a good you one. know made big had big footprints in that format but in edh combustible gear hulk uh, one of our listeners pointed out and uh, nathaniel i believe um props to him for pointing out that this is i i said noxious gear hulk you should go after as a masterpiece when there was 5,000 edh rec decks listed this one's in 4,000, so not that far behind and just like noxious last week you can pick this one up at 35 bucks supply is relatively low art looks cool um and it does a lot more work in edh where you hit when you have multiple opponents than it does in a one-on-one format okay i mean i can get behind that uh i mean in general it's hard for me to not want to play not be into um, in, inventions, masterpieces. So, and and you have to have a much high. You have a much higher chance of being able to cycle this, like get this in and out of play a bunch of times. If you're playing in red blue, Jeskai builds. You know, a lot of the red artifact decks have uh, uh, loot and recover effects um, that can see this do a lot of work. Yeah, it's a cool card. Um, and I I can double. And, you know, forty five bucks or so. Forty bucks is thirty five. Even uh, is is very cheap. For, for a masterpiece um so sure I'm and again if you if you listen to this late and you miss out 
pack foils at four dollars also seemed like a longer term but also equally valid play yes yeah uh i in general i think you know most of these are are good i mean a pack foil mythic that's gonna get played in edh should not be sub ten (laughs) dollars All right, so let's move on here. Segment three, our metagame week in review. We have both Prague and the Star City Modern open. Um, that Hardened Scales Affinity is back again, right? <laughs> Hardened Scales Affinity taking it all down in Prague. And uh, the Brewers looking cool again. I mean, this deck showed up like over a year ago. I sold some foils into that hype. Then it kind of disappeared off the scene. Now it's back. People said, well, yeah, but... You know, we even mentioned it was competing with normal affinity, but the interview that they did on this deck for the SEG Open this weekend, where it also showed up, the uh, the player they were interviewing said, "No, I like. I just think this is a better version of affinity. Like, I I've been playing normal affinity for ages. I'm an affinity aficionado, and now I'm playing the hardened scales version because it is the it should be the main version." Wow, that's a that's a strong a strong claim. Mm-hmm. I mean, magic players are uh, akin, you know, wait, no, are not liable. Prone to or hyperbole. Prone was, thank you, the word I was looking for. Prone to hyperbole, but even still. I mean, that guy didn't make top 16 <laughs> <laughs> in, the Star City, in the Star City tournament, but he was doing well early on. Okay. And and in Prague, it took it all down. So, and And keep in mind, this was after... Two weeks ago, I believe it was three of the top eight in the Magic Online Championship Series. So there's no way you can write this off as, um, you know, uh, a flash in the pan. This is this is a a deck that is in a position similar to several other decks that we've seen this year, where it's kind of coming out of nowhere. It's posting up good results consistently, and it is taking over a share of the metagame. I mean, if you anybody who's called for bannings in modern has to at least bow concede the point that. Looking at these two top eights and several of the recent top eights, they are full of new and interesting decks in the format. The format is vibrant and alive. Are cards like Ancient Stirrings and Mox Opal clearly broken because they keep showing up in these decks? Yeah, totally. But they, it's not resulting in a in a in a um, a format that is broken. It's resulting in a very vibrant format. Like in over in Prague, we have uh, a top eight that was capped by affinity but it also featured two copies of humans which everybody is saying is basically the kind of stock um pace car uh you know yeah it's like the pace car of the format it's the, it's it's a deck that everybody thinks is if it's not the best deck on any given weekend it always has a chance to top eight it is very consistent and because humans is an, is the most printed tribe likely to get better over time mm-hmm. to the point where at some point in the future you know they're probably gonna have to they already are in a position where they have to think about whether printing something as a human is too good. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what pieces it gets over the next, you know, six to 12 to 18 months and whether that pushes it over the top and forces the banning. It would um, be really also, funny to get to a place where they have to ban Mantis Rider in modern. That is a, that is a <laughs> weird format. Sorry guys. Lightning angel is too good. Well, I mean, you raise a good point, right? Because which of the cards in this deck could you even target? Uh, I would imagine you'd have to do more and, and argue analysis to figure that one out. It, it might be Thalia. I, I think if you had to pick something that to neuter humans, it's probably Thalia. Uh, it depends on how Thali- bad you want to hit it. But I mean, Th- Thalia, Thalia, or Kite Sail Freebooter are probably the interaction cards that hold back, um, or maybe Meddling Mage. One of those three cards is the one that kind of makes it have enough 
interference potential with mid-range and combo and control decks that it gives them game across the board. Um, whereas, you know, you, you remove those cards from the deck and it's basically just an aggro, a white weenie deck kind of thing. Right. Um, also interesting to see Bant Spirits show up, which is, you know, there, there seems to be some jostling as to whether Bant Spe- whether Spirits or Humans is actually the thing you're supposed to be playing on any given weekend now because they run along similar lines. This is, you know, differences include Geist of St. Draft in the main. They get to play with Mausoleum Wanderer. They get to, and the thing that really pushed them over the top recently was the printing of Supreme Phantom out of M19. And I think foils of that are still $10 or so, if I'm not mistaken. I suspect that those get to 20 as well. That's, which is pretty crazy. But I mean, foils for Bant Spirits, like from M19, like a recently printed set. I mean, that seems a little high. Summer said. Summer yeah, set. yeah. I mean, I don't see it like this year, but I suppose at some point. To me, a, a four of Somerset foil rare getting to twenty. Just look at Collected Company. Well, I'm not ready to call. Those are very different cards to me, right? Like Collected Company, like it w- was a staple of modern and arguably still is. This is a four of any deck that's good somewhere along good to very good but like you know it's still competing with humans collected company wasn't even a summer rare it was a late spring yeah, rare it's kind of uh dragons of truck here so it was a summer, summer and it's and it's certainly and as you said it's, it's certainly more open-ended than supreme phantom we've seen collected company show up in a bunch of different bant flavored builds or green white value town builds and so forth over time. But I still think, I still think Supreme Phantom's going to get there. Cause I think this, I think bant spirits is going to be around for a while. KCI was fourth in, in Prague. Um, no big surprise there. Anybody that can play it competently is a threat on any given weekend. Jeskai control. So, you know, you've got control representation here and this is where we see the, uh, for a Snapcaster Mage, for a Scalding Tarn, two Search for Ascanta, two Teferi Hero of Dominaria, and no Jace in this version. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would imagine they'll kind of flicker in and out, right? Jace's but and whatnot. Yeah. Well, I, I feel good about Teferi. I feel good about the Search for Ascanta flip foils. <laughs> That's for sure. That card's not going anywhere, and it's never going to get banned. Um, Infect was the final deck of the top eight. Um, over in Prague in a fairly familiar blue-green build um, that was back to running uh, a Spellskite in the main, it looks like. Yeah, nothing else too exciting there. Um, and then over in the Star City uh, open, we had blue-white spirits taking it down. Uh, Monogene Tron in the hands of Annalise Faustino. She had a really good run. I think at one point she was 11-0 and 0 or something, or 10-1. and 1. Um, just, just killing it. Um Burn was third. Jeskai Control was fourth there. That version of Jeskai Control was, I think, a split, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it was two Jace, two Teferi uh, in that version. Um, Dredge in fifth. Blue-White Control in sixth. And in that version, I think it was three Jace, two Teferi. Um, so we're getting a nice sampling there of the top control players uh, and how they, they feel about the Planeswalkers. Humans in 7th, Black Red, Hollow One in 8th. So many of these decks were not even on the radar in Modern a year ago. No, no. It's uh, it's really impressive when you look at what the format... The format feels pretty good on a weekend-to-weekend basis, but if you look at what it looked like, yeah, like you said, a year ago, it's like, wow, it really is different. Well, I mean, before they had Jace back and got to Fairy, Jeskai and Blue-White Control were largely being shunned because 
in the words of many people that were writing articles or being interviewed, they were saying, you know, it doesn't know what solutions it needs to bring to the table on any given week. Yeah. Um, the addition of some powerful planeswalkers to close out the game and uh, they, you know, them, the format crystallizing um, around humans and Tron and some of the other and the graveyard based decks like Black Red Hollow One and Vengevine variants and so forth seems to have um, turned on their ability to predict the sideboard cards that are going to do a lot of damage against this field. Tron has been kind of quiet. I know I know it's popular to complain about it online. You know, we saw, was it one copy and a top eight was at it this weekend? Maybe two. Um, but, you know, I haven't, I feel like I haven't heard much about it at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, the decks, the white portion of the control decks leans so heavily on Leyline of Sanctity, Rest in Peace, and Stony Silence out of the board, but we also saw Settle the Wreckage cast a lot this weekend on camera at the Star City. Um, Settle the Wreckage foils are now up to 18 bucks. Wow. I remember when that was a lot less than that and I was... I did, I, I don't remember if I made that a pick at one point or not, but I was definitely uh, intrigued by it uh, for that reason because mm-hmm. at the time I wasn't thinking about modern, I was thinking about standard, but uh, yeah, it's a pretty powerful card. Um, and being able to instant speed, catch haste creatures, stuff like that. Uh, interesting. And the exile effect, too. Having gotten burned holding Supreme Verdict foils for too long, I'm, I'm not too excited about something that shows up as a one or a two of in, in the blue-white decks, especially when I can focus on things like Search for Azkanta, Con- premium versions of Search for Azkanta and Teferi and and possibly Jace if you, if you ever see a good enough deal on it. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you're, you want to buy Settle the Wreckage, but it was it's just interesting to see that it's that popular i'm curious to see whether i can out some foil terminuses given that some of these build the blue white builds are running four copies of it in the main yeah that i did notice that seemed pretty popular i remember years ago wanting to make a move on terminus but uh then it got reprinted in whatever set modern masters 27 yeah but even before that it got reprinted right ft yeah it might have been that one and i was like okay never mind in annihil- FTV Annihilation yeah, or something? Yeah, that's what it was. It was like, well, I was thinking about going in on this, but not anymore. Whatever the one was with all the Wrath type yeah. effects. All right, so that's that. Let's move on to our fourth and final segment. We wanted to talk about the new products that were announced today um, by Wizards of the Coast. This was including... Let's see. One of them was called Game Night. Magic Game Night which is a little confusing because one of their major content partners is called Game Nights. And in conversation, I could easily see that becoming confusing. Yeah. I, I don't, it, I, I, it's hard to imagine how much they do, uh, how many decisions they make based on that type of thing. Uh, but I, so, it seems, so the first, a little weird to worry about stepping on those toes. So there's a few things I really like about this product from the top. The initial description is great. Magic Game Night contains five pre-constructed decks, one of each color, plus all the accessories you need to play the decks, spin down life counters, life counter platforms, plus one plus one counters, and five reference cards. Releasing November 16th, Magic Game Night will be available in local game stores at $39.99. Comes in a cool box. It's got a good picture uh, of Ajani's Last Stand with Ajani facing off against Nicol Bolas. It's a hexagon-shaped box. That's all super cool. I will buy one just for those reasons. Um, but the rest of this, I find very confusing. So <laughs> the legality as a standalone just phenomenal <laughs> as a standalone product that you might just play with some friends who are going to are likely to stay outside the magic community, but this lets them dip their toe in for a night and have some fun. I think this is great. 
as a way of potentially luring those players into the game, um, it's been mentioned online, and I agree, that this is somewhat confusing because this this product includes some cards that are brand new and some reprints that are going to rotate out of standard shortly. And those parts of these decks are not obviously playable in standard. So you can't just show up with this for your FNM deck and run it. Um, but it does include a bunch of other cards that are currently in print in existing sets, which you could run. So it's not a very good on-ramp product. It really has more of a like Explorers of Ixalan standalone feel, but maybe a better take on that concept. Yeah, the it do, it doesn't seem particularly focused, I guess. Uh, and given that they're all about building on ramps for players to become established, it doesn't seem like it really does that very well. There's a couple of cool reprints. Death Baron shows up in the black mm-hmm. deck. Well, make sure uh, make sure it's hard for the people that who want to buy it can't. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the the card, there are mythics included, one of each color. Uh, I'm not going to go through them all here, but Militant Angel, Inspired Sphinx, I could actually see seeing some play. Rot Hulk, we said, might make its way into EDH. Goblin Goliath. Because they're mythics, they're based, and they're only available in this product, and I think this product will have a relatively short print run, if any of these do start showing up in a lot of EDH decks, I would expect them to be pretty expensive down the road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the... the... The recipe is there for these to be really obnoxiously expensive. And you'll see them in Commander products eventually. Maybe they've already got the ones I think will be good slated for a release next year. Maybe, you know, it'll, you'll have to see one of them hit $20 before Wizards puts it in. So that's certainly an avenue, but there's a gap of time there for things to change. That green one in particular is a double rampant growth for everyone at the table, and it's pretty cheap to put into play. Uh, you know, it's got some good group hug mechanics. Yeah, there. which is you know uh, a, a thing people come back to uh, with with some regularity. I, I think this is a good pickup for like somebody who wants to play with their friends. It's a good pickup if you are just you're a collector in in a kind of a casual sense. Um, because I think what's going to happen here is a couple of these car- these mythics that are included only here will end up hitting ten or fifteen dollars in a couple of years just through relative scarcity. And it'll pay for the majority of your $40, um, you know, buy-in. And if you get to play with your friends a couple nights on, on the flip side, then, you know, you've definitely got your value. Well, so the, the real fun part here is the card legality, right? That's what really is just blowing people's <laughs> yeah. minds. So we got the Magic Game Night product, announced, you know, kind of announcement today uh, in Decklist, along with the Gift Pack Decklist. So the Game Night packaging uh has each of the five decks comes with an exclusive card those are the mythics like militant angel these cards and any other reprinted cards not currently legal and standard are not standard legal so if your deck is 60 cards uh like six of them are not standard legal i think like, I'm kind of browsing, and it looks like some of the... Yeah, there's like a Shadows Over Innistrad card to Inspiring Captains, uh, Subjugator Angel. So, you know, there's not a lot always watching. Like, five or six cards uh, aren't legal and standard. So, if you buy this thing and decide to show up at FNM, boom, your deck's illegal. Uh, including the best card in your deck, which is a Mythic. So, plenty of room to get... And then you're going to be like, wait, 
So I bought this thing to play with my friends. And then I come to your store to play magic with the deck that I bought here. And you're telling me I can't play with it. And then in the same announcement as the game night product, we also get the gift pack announcement, which contains five rares, five new rares that are legal and standard. So if you walk into the store and buy a gift pack and a game night box, all of the cards in your game night box are legal except for five or six, including the one special one. But if you bought the gift pack, the special ones are legal and standard. And it's just like, not to mention, you've still got the Planeswalker decks floating around that makes cards legal. So now it's like, hey guys, how do I know what's legal and standard? Well, it's all of the cards printed in the last two years, except for the ones that were printed actually two years ago, because that's from the last rotation. So it's actually only 18 months right now. Also, here's four supplementary products that all include legal cards that we have to enumerate, but not all the cards in there are legal, only some of them. And also, but there are cards in there that are not standard legal. Like the idea of standard being an, an easy block of cards to understand in terms of legality uh, is way out of the window. I mean, I, I liken this to like, you look at the time spiral commons and uncommons and you're like, how did you get to a point where you thought it was okay to print Riftmark Knight at Uncommon. Like the complexity here is way too high on this card for the average Magic player. And this is the legality, like standard legality version of that. Like how does somebody look at this and go, okay, as a whole, this is an okay thing to have out in the world. It's also funny. It gets a lot better if they include the phone number of that like super chatty, annoying guy, the know-it-all at your local LGS who always pipes up with like corrections and clarifications. If you get to call him and then he explains it to you for five minutes and then, you know, won't stop text messaging you for days, the whole thing gets more interesting. Yes. It's, it's quite a decision here that they have made with this. And this is what everyone is kind of talking about mostly. You know, the cards are kind of cool, but like so, the conversation is dominated by the insanity of these formats, the legality here. So, so I also love that Nexus of Fate showed up on camera in Modern this weekend. Oh, did it? <laughs> and, and then to on top of that needling of the people that were already annoyed by that card, um, there are now 10 more cards that are only available in these specialty products that you may not be interested in five of which are legal and standard and the others are may or may not be relevant in edh at some point so you, you're now being pushed to buy products you might uh, might have ignored which is you know solid marketing as far as i can tell um but i'm sure we'll we'll further inflame the flames of the people who are running signal fires on this topic as far as i'm concerned it's extremely obnoxious for me because i don't want to have to do the work of trying to remember which one of these damn cards is legal and which ones aren't like wait which, what product was this from was that what wait is that standard legal is this something i should be specking on for the fall because there's only a hundred copies out there across the world and it's actually good or was it not one of the legal ones like oh it is so I obnoxious mean, even if you care it's annoying to keep track of this stuff and and it's we're being a little facetious and tongue in cheek, but I, I literally was walking around a bunch of comic stores and LGSs with my dad this weekend, watching him try to pick out on the shelf the things he still needed for his collection. And because he's like one of these guys who's completely out of the seat, doesn't doesn't read anything online really very often, certainly isn't on social media, doesn't have a Facebook or Twitter account, doesn't follow. No. And so and doesn't watch YouTube. So 
you know, him being like, wait, what's that? What's that Chinese dual deck? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, are... yeah. They made that for the Chinese. <laughs> yeah. By the way, it's for the Chinese cars... market, but it's printed yeah, in English. But those are also only legal for FNM if you're in China. Right. <laughs> but you can get English versions. Yeah. So, anyway. yeah there, so that's in there, too. Oh, my God. This is just worse the more I think about it. So, so it's, a re- it's a real thing because, like, I literally, like, he didn't know what to buy. If I hadn't been standing there or one of the people, you know, hadn't, like, piped in to help him. He would have had a tough time figuring out which products were for him. Yeah. And what's even better about this is we are uh, essentially professionals at this, right? Like with we kind of need to care about it. Uh, but what if you at least educate yeah, amateurs? But what if you've got like they just a dude who's working at like a hobby shop in general who like magic isn't his necessarily his thing and it's not necessarily the store, you know, the store's main focus who like now has to keep track of all this and people are going to buy products and be like oh so like i can play these f and m he's gonna be like oh yeah sure like other than other than that the employees are gonna have to know like okay these exact cards are legal and these exact ones are and make sure you make it clear to people when they buy them uh what they can play here and what they can't or other than that people are gonna be like but the guy behind the counter told me i could play these stupid cards at f and m All right, so most of these cards are probably not going to be a big deal. Uh, I think the EDH ones are most likely to see some appreciation over time. I think that set is especially pretty spicy, has some good value. Um, I'll be, I'll pick one up. Um, I have another cute little side story about how a couple of different LGSs handled uh, my presence this weekend. One of the ones on the Canadian side of the border. Um, had all sorts of like rando reserve list cards sitting in a binder um, for like 50 cents or a dollar. So I was picking up like foil ash and skin Zuberas for a dollar and which is not reserve list, but has recently spiked um, and a whole bunch of like Mirage era reserve list jank that you can buy list for three or four or five dollars that they were selling for 50 cents. And in the midst of like plowing through those binders and I only had like 10 or 15 minutes to get it done. Some kid runs up from the FNM and goes, hey, are you James Chilcott? From MSG Fast Finance? I listen to that podcast every week. Hey, are you picking out specs? <laughs> <laughs> and the owner kind of eyes me like, hmm. Hmm. I just looked these up. But to his credit, still sold me what I asked for that he had priced. Um, and then at another place, uh, this time in central Ohio, um, I, I locate a I spy as I walk past the first case of cards, an Academy Rector priced at $22. And I'm like, oh, snap by that. So I like, can I see that Academy Rector, sir? And he pulls it out. I'm like, yeah, that looks good. I'll, I'll, I'll take that, please. And he takes it to the till and starts typing. And I'm like, oh, yeah. here we go. And then he goes, oh, that'll be $88, yeah. please. And I was like, wait, 88? You've got it. You've priced it at 22. You're changing the price on the fly. And he points to this sign on the side of the case that I had missed that said, magic cards are a live market. Prices are subject to change at any time. <laughs> that's so shitty. So, and I was like, that's a new one. I, I, I go into stores all the time that don't bother to price cards. And so then that prompts, how do you price your cards? And then they have an answer. Usually it's TCG low or TCG mid or it's Star City Games or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. totally fine. But the thing where you price and then change, nah, I, nah, nah. nah. You've so like two or three years ago, probably three years ago now, I when I was still writing ad hoc articles every week, I wrote a really pissy one 
Um, and I, I will, you know, start off by saying I've never had someone approach me in a store and say, Hey, aren't you that guy? Uh, I guess my local reputation preceded all of my content creation. So they just knew me as a the sullen jerk rather than the, the friendly voice on the podcast. But I went into one of the local stores here, uh, you know, just driving by and poked my head in. And I think like they had like through the breaches at like $5 and they had recently spiked to like 15 or something like that and a couple odds and ends. But the guy behind the counter knew who I was and knew that at least locally I had a reputation for like trading, right? Like being on top of the market. Like I was a guy who knew this type of stuff. And every card in the case is individually priced and I'm picking them all out. And I, I don't know if I got like 15 cards or something like that, 10 cards. And he puts them on it and he's like, okay, just so you know, these through the breaches are now like $25. And I'm like, but it says $5 in the case. And he's like, yeah, well, this is how much they are now. I'm like, but it says the price sticker on it. You're not going to sell it to me for that? He's like, I can't. I'm like, okay, I don't want any of these cards. Like, if you're going to change the price on all of them, I don't want them. So I just left. And uh, he was just, you know, a registered jockey. So I came back a day later, uh, you know, and I came from work. So I was dressed professionally and I knew the store owner. We, you know, we had met and chatted quite a few times. And I said, you know, I, I want to speak to you about an experience I had here the other day. Uh, you know, I felt like it was kind of, it was a little unpleasant. And I'm like, the guy, you know, and I kind of explained what happened. And I said, the sales associate wasn't really rude. That's not my concern. But I'm like, you know, I think it's kind of crummy that you have these prices that are here. And it kind of lets you have your cake and eat it too, because if the card dropped in price, well, you're not updating that. You know, you're going to, if it says $5 yeah. on the sticker, but now it's three, you're still charging them five if they said they take it. But meanwhile, you're jumping the price up if it did go up. And I'm like, also, I don't believe you're doing that for every customer. I don't think you guys are looking this up for every card you pull. I think he did it because he knew who I was, which means I'm getting charged different prices than other people. I'm like, yeah, I don't want to make a, like a huge deal out of this, but I think this is, I, I don't care for the customer service aspect here. And, uh, you know, I was very plain professional and he basically told me to shut the hell up. And at one point he was like, well, blah, blah, blah. Like, you know, I don't, I don't really like it when people come in. He didn't say this quite as directly, but he did use this specific word. He was like something, something about people trying to, to shark people in my store, like, or to, to shark the store employees. And I'm like, or he's like, I don't want them getting sharked. I'm like, excuse me? Like, you're accusing me of coming here and taking advantage of your employees? People who you are paying <laughs> to know this type of stuff? I'm like, are you kidding me yeah. with this? Like, this, I know the guy behind the counter. He's not just some random dude who's here on a summer job that, like, doesn't care about any of this. He's a magic player. And furthermore, what really incenses me about all of this is that there are so many websites chief among them mtg price that you can sit down in front of every morning take five minutes to look for all the cards that have seen a large jump in price and go over and fix those right like how hard is it to tell your staff your employees every morning check the website anything that raised by more than two bucks go fix it right like this is not hard to do uh, but they don't do that. And it's, it's just it's I imagine it runs afoul of truth and advertising laws, but it's always too small. Yeah. Yeah. Someplace. It's always too small for it to matter. But that, yeah, it really incenses me to do that. Like, you you know, either don't price the cards and check the price every time yep. somebody comes up, which fine. I'm OK with that. Uh, but it just means it's a pain in the ass for your employees and the customers. But like, that's sort of the point. Or if you're going to put stickers on the cards, accept that that's the price of them. Uh, and honor that price because you're just you're just screwing consumers at that point. And I understand that people are going to listen to this and be like, "Oh, what? So we should feel, you know, bad for you." <laughs> Sorry, yeah, for like, you. Like, 
Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, whatever. You can tell me that like you don't have to feel bad for me because I feel like I couldn't rip a store off or whatever. But I'm not the only person they're doing this to. I'm sure I am the type of person who will bring it up and I'm a pronounced example. But there are definitely people they're doing this to who are not me. It's a discussion that has a bunch of different angles. And it certainly, if you look at it from a couple of them, leans into the worst of what people think of MTG Finance. But let, let me explain this from a different perspective. I walked into a store where a card that spiked over a year ago was still priced at $22. So, and this store was an LGS. People were playing Magic while I was there. Um, you know, it's a priced case store. So that means that whoever's in charge of pricing has been not doing their job for a year. Um, at least on that card. Um, and there were several other examples in the case I didn't bother to pursue because I knew the result would be the same. Yeah. And and it also means that even at that price, it didn't sell at your store. And this <laughs> is one of the things that I think that people need. This is one of the things that people need to remember when they're managing retail and referencing some larger retail operations online's pricing to set their own pricing. Your local market is different. This is one of the reasons that that the the European operators on MKM continue to sell us low, low priced EDH cards relative to what we can get for them in the US because in their local markets, there aren't that many people playing EDH and so these cards don't move very well. So unless those guys do deals overseas, it makes sense for them to sell them to us because otherwise they sit around for years never selling. And likewise, nobody wanted Academy Rector at this active magic store for over a year. So I, I would have... What I think they should have done in that situation, and the, the person behind the counter wasn't just a jockey, it was the owner, and they had price control, was he should have said, listen, it's up to you know 80 plus, it's reserve list, it's going somewhere, I had a price of 22, how about I meet you in the middle? Mm -hmm. And he would and I would have bought the card and he would have sold the card, because it would have left margin for me, he would have got double or triple what he was asking anyway. The card finally moves. He gets to move that those funds back into something that actually does sell him in his, in his store. And that presumably they have expertise because the store has been there for years um, and was well rated when we looked it up online. Hence why we arrived. And and everybody would have been happy. But in the situation where I now know that, that, you know, I spend tens of thousands of dollars on magic a year. But I now know that that store in my circle of influence is not worth targeting because everything will be priced between TCG low and mid, which is, of course, going to be above anything I ever pay, I'll never go back there. No. There's, there's just, no, just no reason for me to try to deal. Whereas if he had met me in the middle, then I might have come back and tried to do that deal again. And, he, and I could have been an outlet for things that don't move in his store. Yeah. Which is exactly the kind of relationships you want to be building if you want to be setting your churn level to an appropriate place. Yeah, because for the and you know, he's finding someone that can take all of his like weird stuff, like I mean, I'm not even gonna call Academy Record a weird card, but like stuff that's generally a more niche market. And it's just it's an easy outlet for him. He can kind of churn it, build a relationship. Maybe he knows that you know, maybe if this happens enough, he knows that you can bring him stuff like, hey, you seem to know your stuff. You know, if you encounter any of this, can you like bring it to me? And you'd be like, yeah, sure. Like, I'll, I'll come and buy a list it to you instead of somewhere else. Like, you know, if Channel Fireball will give me a dollar fifty for this card and this guy will give me a dollar for them, but he's selling me Academy Records at four bucks, a piece, 40 bucks a piece instead of 85, I'll toss them to him. Right. Like, do him a favor. I, I mean, the, the reality at this point is that in the tour of duty I do, like the, the 20 or 30 stores that I know of that I visit like every few months or so, you know, put, put, put everybody on the schedule depending on where I am on any given weekend. Those stores should be paying me a low amount of money, a $20 bill or something to reprice 20 things in their case the second I walk in the store. Yeah. 
it would easily be worth it because I memorize the thing about guys like us is I memorize dozens of prices a week and I have handy reference spreadsheets of like the last few hundred things I've speculated on. So I can walk in and, and peg 20 things like Academy Rector and say, hey, give me a $20 bill and I'll tell you what the price tag should be on those. Or we can do this middling deal that I talked about earlier and we'll meet you where I'm meet you in the middle of the road. But what I find in, in retail, people are are largely stuck in their rut, right? They have their pro- policy and procedure. They have their rules. In some cases, the person just has no power. Like you said, they're, they're a registered jockey that's not allowed to make any to make any deals. And even the owners tend to think that, you know, it's my way or the highway and they don't they don't appreciate being told how to run their business. So it, it's something we will run into again and again over the years. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I actually remember have making that. I think I made that comment to the store owner. I was like, so basically I came in here and spent 15 minutes browsing your case just to do your employee's job for him to pick out the cards that needed to be changed in price and update them. I'm like, I, I, I don't know if I told him I should be getting paid for it, but I'm like, I, I perform the service of an employee here for you. Uh, like, this is crap. You know that you're doing this because um, you're in. I in. You know, I could if he said, "Hey, come in once a month. I'll pay you twenty bucks to stand there for a couple minutes and just go that one, that one, that one, that one, that one, and that one." Right? Yeah. Like easily, will make you more than twenty dollars to do that. Uh, and you know, you you comment on the employees getting stuck in their rut too, and this goes beyond just card stores. And I'm going to share this story, which is only barely relevant, but I have a platform, so I'm going to complain about it. Uh, that. Um, it's, I think it's, I think there's a, it's very common amongst service level employees. And I've been there myself for a long time, um, to, to sort of rigidly follow the rules and the policies and the procedures. And, you know, if you are one of those individuals, you, you lack any sort of power to really do much about it, unless you have, you know, you have that relationship with your supervisor where you can get away with it. But if you're overseeing those types of people, you really want to give your employees the leeway to do what they can for people. Um, because it really does make a difference. Uh, and you know, the example I had recently is I bought a jacket and I, I was a little small and I was having a hind about whether to keep it. And when I bought it, they didn't have the larger size. So I kind of just kept it. And then I was like a week past the return period. And I noticed I had restocked with the larger size. So I called them and I'm like, look, uh, you know, I'm a little past the return date, but you've got the exact same product in stock, uh, you know, I just want to change it for this lar- the larger size. And she swore up and down. Well, we don't do exchanges. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I'm like, all I want you to do is put the bigger jacket in the mail. I'll send you this one. It's not like you don't sell the product anymore. And I'm sending you something back, you got nothing to do with. And I fought with her and fought with her until, well, I didn't say I fought with her. She told me no. And I just asked for a manager and the manager fought with me, the supervisor. And I'm like, look, lady, we got two options. You can do a real simple exchange for me. I know you don't do exchanges, but this is very simple. I spend thousands of dollars a year on this type of stuff. Uh, and either you can exchange a jacket for me and I will be happy that you helped me out. And I will be happy to buy more clothes from this particular store in the future. Or you can tell me, no, stick me with a jacket. I probably is a little too small and I will make sure everyone on social media knows how terrible the customer service experience was here and ask them not to spend money here. So which path do you want to take? And I got in the cave and kind of meet me halfway, but I was just struck at like how locked into these, these roles and these rules people get. Uh, and it's very easy to kind of get tunnel vision on that. So I guess I'm mostly speaking to the people who oversee those individuals, give your staff some 
latitude in working with customers. And I think it will pay you dividends in the long run. This is a big topic for another night. I have, <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing I hate more than the, the way that customer service has gone in, in the age of technology. Um, and I have horror stories to share about trying to replace my Pixel 2 that I suspected might be compromised and how impossible it was to find information or support on the topic. So we'll maybe we'll tackle that next week or the week after. <laughs> the um, We're also looking to line up a pro tour hall of famer sometime here in the next month or so to come talk to us about their adventures in mtg finance hall of fame so uh yeah Hmm. i didn't realize that indeed uh so look for that we'll have more details on that as we firm it up and uh, i i will finish up tonight by circling all the way back to amazing uh spider-man no amazing fantasy 15 i believe was the first appearance of spider-man which has sold as high as 1.1 million dollars um, one of the most expensive uh, comics of all time, if not the most expensive. Um, apparently, the print run on that is assumed to be somewhere in the 250000 or 300000 range, so more than any given Alpha Rare. Yeah, Alpha Rares were and, like 12000 Yeah. Um, but such a larger... Uh, uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Globally, sure. because, because of the success of the Marvel product. So, reinforcing my point that... I. I I think the upper limit, you know, if the upper limit on a comic book is a million dollars for a character that's known the world over, I think one of the things that to keep an eye out for as the, you know, as magic continues down the the path it's on is, do we ever get the breakout moment culturally? Is there a cartoon or movie or video game that appears on the scene and transcends interest in magic that is just beloved because of the quality of that product? that then pulls a bunch of people into the game and, and broadens our influence or ensures that it, it takes up uh, position in the hearts and minds of a nut, yet another generation. Because so far, Magic is like a two-generation product. And the question is, will it last to become a third-generation product? Once you are a third-generation product, you are you know a too-big-to-fail kind of brand. Um, and you're part of that kind of cultural consolidation that is going on where corporations believe that it is it is cheaper and more reliable um, to pursue profits around pre-existing properties than it is to create. New well, that was, um, that was what the magic movie was supposed to be, right? That was the idea exactly. was that, that we have that seems to not really be getting anywhere. In yeah, but that was definitely the idea that that would be the vehicle. And I remember when they announced it and, you know, again, I was still writing a lot of articles when we were all kind of jazzed. We're like, Oh man, this could drive like player growth in the way that is, incomprehensible right like uh you know triple or quadruple the amount of active players were like god stuff from like edh staples and modern cards are just going to go insane if this happens and of course we haven't gotten there um and it certainly seems like that that may have passed but uh if wizards ever gets anyone competent at the host or at the helm uh, helm of the host and puts out some sort of you know youtube series or uh God forbid, it, like a forward-thinking media product, you know, the, one of the first of its kind, you know, that would not be a YouTube sitcom, but, you know, whatever that would look like. Um, it could be a huge but thing deal. Is, I, think, I, I think it's possible they're thinking in the wrong direction. If Magic had come out in 84 instead of 94, like 93, 94, 83, 84, it would have been a Saturday morning cartoon for sure. And it would have posted up culturally in a very different way. 
it would have been much more mainstream. It would have been right there neck and neck with Thundercats and, and Transformers and all the rest. Um, but because it came out in 94, when <clears throat> a lot less of that was going on and this brand just wasn't in position, they didn't, ha- they weren't owned by Hasbro at first. They were like a gamers gaming company and they were relatively small and then they got bigger and then eventually Hasbro bought them. So because they didn't have access to, to that kind of thing um, and the market had definitely shifted from the mid 80s to the mid 90s. It didn't develop in that way. But I, I think today, if I if I was at the helm, I would be looking into like an adult swim, like MA targeted, like cartoon with some edge. Show me planeswalkers run, running around and like maybe using curse words. Now, that that would definitely be interesting, especially when you consider the uh, cost to get in the door, right? Like magic is not cheap. Uh, just like Warhammer is not cheap and Warhammer's embrace that, right? Like Warhammer is, I, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not that familiar with it, but uh, it can be, as far as I understand, reasonably adult, at least PG 13, you know? Uh, yeah. Largely on the, on like the, like violence yes, side. Yes. And I think that like, and if, if you were talking about like slivers ripping people's heads off instead of curse words, then that might be the angle you go with. Like show me a badass plane to plane magic adventure where they're like there's some greater goal like defeating nickel bolas or whatever and they're leaping plane to plane trying to get that done and do it with new characters from back when they originally defeated bolas like a thousand years ago or whatever and you know show us a bunch of worlds and i I think you could get that movie i think you could get that show on that station with the right script and the right animators you know animated in a like mid to late 80s style kind of a classical like saturday morning animation style and i think you be a slam yeah, I mean, smart ass cartoons where characters are kind of jerks and human and, uh, you know, sort of sarcastic and it's still very popular. I mean, look at the Rick and Morty and people that are super into that. Uh, you know, there's definitely a market for that and it doesn't have to be super dramatic. I don't want, uh, you know, the new Teen Titans movie type of thing that's, that's embarrassing for all parties involved. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree that would be kind of fun and amusing and you could do a lot with it, uh, but it would be too uh, adventuresome for wizards, unfortunately, I think. But I do wonder... Well, they just don't have expertise. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there are people in, in inside who have floated these kind of ideas, but I, I don't think that Hasbro in general has demonstrated savvy in terms of understanding that market and what's possible. But like, I just want to see... Uh, show me a red wizard on one mountaintop and a blue wizard across the canyon hurling spells at each other with sweat dripping down their brow, like trying to focus and concentrate and calling up mana from the lands that they're connected with and summoning shit in. And then the guy makes a mistake and his lightning bolt gets countered and he gets knocked off the cliff and his, his artifact gets lost. And then they go on an adventure to find it and whatever. Like, sh- sh- give me, give me, some I want to see Archer, the cartoon with, with the <laughs> Gatewatch. Like that would be funny. Like, like <laughs> I, I'm thinking something in that regard, yes. right? Like kind of sarcastic and smart ass. And maybe there's some, but it's mostly regard. like the character dynamics and the being jerks type of thing and, and goofing around and being funny. Like that would be fun. Cause then it's like, you know, there's some interesting tie-ins there. And I don't know, there's look at some of the most popular social media brands right now, right? They're not like earnest or cool or exciting. They're Arby's tweeting about how they people want to die because their roast beef sandwich is soggy. Like you know, people are very into that right now. So there's a there's a very rich vein for like sarcastic, smart ass content. And and comedy is never an it's easy to say make this comedy thing. 
But unless you, comedy is always a perfect storm. You need the right writer. You need the right support structure from the brand that you're borrowing from. And it takes a, a very like uh, sophisticated sense of brand management to understand that pointing a gun at the head of your own brand by making fun of it constantly could actually build your brand. Um, you know, being willing to, you know, undercut some of the things that gamers take too seriously and write that into those scripts could really do well. And of course, Jason Alt would love the opportunity to try out as a voice actor. <laughs> really just for anything. Just pay, pay me to do anything, you guys, please. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. I have I, I, I have some like an archive of some experiments I ran with Jason that I was actually quite impressed with a couple of years mm. ago. You guys um, were practicing. I, I had a concept for something that I thought we were going to do like every set for MGG price. And it was a lot of work to do it well. And we did a couple of tests for it. And I was I was impressed. Jason, Jason can can pull some weight. He is. <laughs> That's. <laughs> Good way to put that. Uh, he, he is a funny guy. And I've actually workshopped a couple jokes on Twitter and DMs because I was like, this is funny, but I need help making sure it's really funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, so if you see my jokes on Twitter and you're like, this isn't funny, Jason made it bad. <laughs> but all right, it's been way too long. I have to go to bed. Yeah, let's get out of here. All right, so uh, that brings us to the end of episode 133. I thought a particularly good one. Uh, where can our listeners find you, James? Not to pat ourselves on the back too much. Um, you guys can find me on Twitter at MGG Critic as well as, via, as, well as via my weekly articles on MGGPrice.com. And I'm Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. Uh, and I do the Watchtower series every Monday on MGG Price. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mgtprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MGG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right. So that's the end of episode 133. I had a good time chatting tonight, James, and I will see you next week. Take care, Travis. We'll see all of you again next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.